Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Pod for another week. My name is Matt Walsh, Jared Barker's here and Christian Jolly from Champion Data here to break down another weekend of footy action around two. And there's plenty to talk about this week. There are some alarm bells ringing down uh, at Witnoval. We've been pleasantly surprised by some other clubs and we've got one key stat from your team from the weekend. JB, how are you uh, this fine Tuesday? Uh, good, mate. Cold. It's cold in here. And I've been cold. complaining it's about it's turning the last cold in Melbourne. Uh, we are getting yeah. into the wintry parts of. We the... are. I don't handle it well. Uh, I don't handle it the well. Sicilian blood in you. I think it is the Sicilian blood. So, uh, mum, dad, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing to me, but uh, I've got to put up with it. I've got hairy arms, so I should be okay. Yes. Does nothing. Well, you're also just in a t-shirt. You could be wearing a jumper. Uh, yeah, a bit warm with the jumper on. A bit cold <laughs> with the jumper off, so I can't win. But the footy's good. The footy has been hot. You could say almost uh, keeping everyone nice and warm. Christian, are you a hot or a cold? Do you run hot or cold at home? All right, but it's not almost 20 degrees, so you might not want to save your whinging for a couple of months yet. <laughs> 20 degrees in this room. Well, not in this room. But no, it's a bit fresher a bit, in this yeah, room. Yeah, a bit instead. early to be cl- complaining about the cold. I wasn't but, complaining uh, out there, I was complaining in here. <laughs> uh, before we get cracking into the main body of the podcast today, guys, something from the weekend we noticed that took your attention, Jazzy? Uh, yeah, something I'll, I'll say, th- say thanks to uh, one of Twitter's greatest accounts, Sir Swamp Thing, who uh, gave us a nice little stat over the weekend. Uh, Scott Pendlebury and Steel Sidebottom broke the Collingwood record for the most wins as teammates, 164 games. Uh, so that's a, a record that was 90 years in the making, I think. Harry Collier and Gordon Coventry played in 163 wins as teammates. That was back in the 30s, so a nice 90-year record that those two... Uh, just broke. 163 wins. 164 wins. Four wins. And you'd think they've got another, what, two yeah. seasons maybe? Potentially. Together. Yeah. Not a bad effort, is Could it? Crack 200. Uh, do we have any other stats on the, the league? Like who's had the most uh, wins together, games played together, anything like that? I haven't found uh, wins together. I don't know if you, if you know that, Christian. Games together, though, Andrew McLeod and Tyson Edwards have played 307 together. I think Hawkins and Salwood were 305. Imagine playing that so, many games. To, like, to get 300 games in footy in AFL is an unreal achievement. Yeah. Imagine being able to suit up with the same person for, you know, what is that, 15 years worth of footy. It's unreal, isn't the, it? The two active partnerships you want to keep watch of is Pendlebury and Sidebottom. So they've played in 269 together. If they play another 20 games this year, they'll go to 289, which is fifth all-time. And if they got next season as well, you add 20 to that and they're breaking the record. Uh, but Jack Rewalt and Trent Cochin are seven games ahead of him. There you go. Good stuff. So, Christian, something from the weekend that took your fancy? Uh, probably a couple. I've got the first uh, irrelevant stat for the season, if you want. Um, so looking at win the, win the stat and win the game, uh, the stat win trends, as we call it. Is it uh, the score? No, well, the score's still at 100%, surprisingly. The only stat at 100%. Uh, 18% win the... Play on more from a mark than your opposition, uh, and you only win 18% of the time. So really? too early to make big sweeping calls, but the old sort of looking by the eye and say, yeah, they're moving the ball fast, they're playing on, they've got to keep doing that. Sort of not the way teams are playing. It's it's keep the ball moving forward, but don't play with such a rush that you sort of don't have time for maybe the offense to get set and things like that. But yeah, as I said, early days, but uh, I think yeah, only, only two of the teams that have actually won that stat have actually won the match. So was it again... Play on from a mark. Play on from a mark. So straight away. So take the mark and keep playing on right. but before it, before your opponent's got time to set on set on the mark. So if you okay. take a mark, sort of go back over and then get called to play on, that doesn't count in this stat. This yeah. is just take the mark and immediately keep going either by running or moving it by hand That's or good. foot. 
uh, yeah, it just seems to be the, the bottom-ranked stats so far, so we'll keep an eye on that as, it, as the season goes on. Just another little one I noticed. I'm sure we'll talk about this team across the pod, but Collingwood at the moment, there's 34 elite players in the competition using our AFL player rating points. 34 players that have played both games, that is. Eight of those are Collingwood players, which basically includes nearly every line on the field besides Ruckman, um, which Darcy Cameron's not far away from being an elite-rated Ruckman. Uh, the way he's going early this year. But yeah, like three midfielders, a general defender, a couple of general forwards in there. So uh, yeah, smashing it across each line. Bloody hell. That's uh... Who, Who's the most obscure player that's rated elite for Collingwood? Right oh, I don't know if he's obscure. Bobby Hill, again, just brought him in. He's already an elite general forward across his first two games. So what he's producing, um, you know, Tom Mitchell's another one um, who we want to sort of talk about when we touch on Collingwood. But yeah, probably not obscure. I think they're um, they're just, yeah, they're the guys that you've, you've been able to watch by eye that are, that are killing it at the start of the year. There you go. Uh, something I noticed, obviously the sub rule has been tweaked this year, so it's not just a medical sub. You can sub at any time, uh, meaning that you know you can have a healthy list and everyone's out there uh, during the third or the fourth quarter and then someone can be taken off and subbed out. Just a couple of instances on the weekend where players either seemed miffed that they were subbed um, or frustrated that they were subbed. I saw Jack Silvani on, on Thursday night walking uh, towards the bench after three-quarter time, sort of shaking his head a bit perplexed. Uh, Dyson Heppel looked a bit surprised to be given the red vest when uh, he was subbed out of uh, Essendon's win over Gold Coast. I, I know it's a, a little rule tweak this year, but are coaches not informing players of their plans pre-game? Like, is it going to be, a, if we're healthy, we, we might be taking you off in this situation? It just sort of seems strange that the players are so openly miffed by this. I, I've thought about the same thing. I don't know why you would tell the player. I don't know why Brad okay. Scott would say to Dyson Heppel, we're planning to sub you out for the game. It's that mindset of, once you... Once you put a guy out there, if you give him an end point that he sort of knows he's only going to get to three-quarter time, it might change the way he plays. Things. I, I don't know. You sort of spend keep it. all your tickets in three quarters, yeah, but you he might have had something in the tank. So why someone, wouldn't you want to spend all got, tickets? Yeah, someone might have got injured in the second quarter. It changes your plan. So I don't think mm. coaches would, should be able to word up their substitute play. I think they'll just, yeah, could keep them in the dark. compromise the, the way they go out and play. So, um, yeah, I don't think coaches owe it to the players to let them know their their thoughts because it could change. The one I the one I found interesting though is did did Buddy Franklin make a phone call into the Sydney box to get Joel Joel Amadi off because he was almost going to steal his spot? That was that was the most strange sub for good me. Almost half for Joel. Not I a noticed, bad return. No, it's a very good return. Logan McDonald, not too bad Fine, either. Yep. I noticed the Heppel one. I didn't notice the Silvani one though. But yeah, I'm I'm like Christian. I like I think coaches do go in to the game without talking to their players and in their mind they'll say okay I think if all being all equal no one gets injured uh, this guy might be the, the player that we sub but I think those plans do change throughout the game so yeah I don't think they have a reason to actually notify the players and say hey you're only playing three quarters today uh, just don't think that makes sense so yeah they must have just seen the the way the game was being played and thought yeah Heppel you're off mate there you go uh, let us know what you think at footy tips on Twitter is where you'll find us hey there are a few 2-0 and o and 0-2 o and teams a couple that have actually surprised us as well Christian I know that Champion Data loves getting these requests in because it's kind of one of those fun stats that pops up in other codes as well the NFL is a big one where if you're 0-2 you're you know, single-figure percentage chance to make playoffs and all that but of course they only play 17 games um, but you do get a few requests of these. Like, if you start the AFL season zero and two, how likely your team is to either make finals, play finals, go for a deep run, and all that kind of stuff. So, I guess let's go through some of the zero and two, two and zero stats uh, that uh, pop up every year. Uh, yeah. So at the moment, um, I think is it three or four teams are sitting two and zero. Uh, so we're going back to 2000 to have a look at that. So 107 times we've seen teams sitting two and zero at this stage of the season. 79 of those have made finals, 28 have missed. So 74% uh, 
you know, chance or history of making finals from a 2-0 position. Uh, from 0-2, and two, we've seen 20 of the 108 teams make the finals. So that drops down to a 19% chance. And no team has won the premiership starting the season 0-2. and two. Ooh, so Geelong, uh, looking to go back-to-back. We talk about this on the podcast a lot. It's hard to win one premiership, let alone two, let alone back-to-back. So that's clearly not a great start for them. Other 0-2 and two teams, Fremantle, a bit disappointed by what we've seen by from them. Uh, Adelaide, Gold Coast Suns, disappointed by what we've seen by them from them. The Western Bulldogs, another disappointing team, uh, and the Hawks. Uh, and there were those five teams that have uh, started 2-0. and zero. So Sydney on top, St Kilda. Essendon, and they face off this week. So they're one of those teams are a chance. Well, they will most likely, unless another draw occurs, be three and zero, uh, or zero and uh, sorry, one of those teams will be three and zero. What does the likelihood of playing finals hit when it's a three and zero start? Yeah, so sixty-one times uh, since two thousand and fifty of those teams have made it. So um, yeah, really, really high up. And seven out of sixty that are zero and three have made finals. So again, another loss for the Bulldogs and. Uh, Geelong this week, and it, and it makes it even harder. So I've looked at the last 23 premiers, so again, using everything since 2000. And if you just look at what the premiers have been at round two, so zero of them, as I said, have been zero and two. Eight of the premiers have been one and one. 14 of the premiers have been two and zip. And one of the premiers was one win and one draw to start the season. Blues. So, <laughs> so Blues yeah, two, two and zip, obviously, yeah, 14 of the last 23 premiers have started winning the first two games. Uh, there you go. I, look, I know it's they're not like it's overwhelming, but, uh, you know, 60% roughly. Go on, yep. Christian. And I do smile because this year I don't think anyone's actually realised there's a 23rd game this year. So we're playing with an extra mm, game. So every time true. I get this this query, it's it's great for the past, but uh, I think it's from the, you know, the insurance ads. Uh, what, what's the saying? It's... Past past, uh, past performance may not be a regular yeah, indicator yeah, of yeah, something future like that. performances. So, <laughs> oh, there you go, uh, Jazzy. There are, like we said, a few teams that have surprised either two and zero or zero and two. Which team has really stood out to you, whether good or bad, through the first fortnight of the season? Uh, whether good or bad, uh, well, the dogs are probably the most concerning team I'd say at the moment for a team as as star-studded as them especially when you go through the their lineup so many gun midfielders McRae Bontempelli uh, Bailey Smith Liberatore um, and this hyped up forward line mix of an up-and-coming Darcy and Hugo Hagen and Norton um, and the aerial prowess that they have but it's just amounted to nothing yeah. at the moment. doesn't seem to be clicking in that forward line. I know we no. talked about it in pre-season. Jamara had that really nice breakout game against the Ds last year where he kicked six. We thought he could go on with that, but a couple of down performances. I think he's kicked one goal five on the season, had 15 touches across the two games. So, and look, Darcy's obviously very raw. We know that. Um, He'll come good. Yeah, but it's still the defensive aspect for me. I mean, they're allowing so many inside 50s. Which is, this is what's concerning, though, is... Last year, their issue was a defensive issue, and this yeah. year, their issue is a defensive issue. They're allowing too much score. Uh, they can't keep the ball inside 50. They've, they've kicked five goals in round two. Um, the last time they kicked less than five goals in a game was five years ago. Um, and I talk about this forward line and, and the midfielders that you have and the supply that you're supposed to get with this kind of group. It's just it's not clicking, as you said. Uh, but then when you couple that with the defensive issues and teams just beating up on them and hunting him everywhere around the ground mm. doesn't look good Chris, and being, being smashed in contested ball and bottom bottom of the table for kick rating as well so struggling to get their hands on it and when they do they're not using it quite well so yeah the, a whole lot of numbers sort of jump out at you from the yeah. page of how, how bad 18 feet centre clearances and 18th for inside 50s 
third worst team for scoring score, scores source from defensive 50. We've talked about how important that is in the modern game. Um, you know, they've allowed 66 and 57 inside 50. So you'd think that a few of those turnovers, they might be able to start in the scoring change, but yeah. chains, but not even that. They've got the worst differential of scores source from D50 as well at negative 55. So things just aren't going well at the kennel at all. Is there an elephant in the room here that we haven't spoken about? Oh, I mean, yeah. Potentially, Bevo uh, re-signed again, so this would be his final year under contract if he didn't sign the extension. Uh, so you could argue that the the heat would be even higher on him if he hadn't have re-signed. Because what, why why do you think think they re-signed him? Well, they probably thought you know two two seasons ago or less than two seasons full seasons ago he was a coaching his side into a grand final that got pumped by seventy points. Still made a grand final, tough to do. If my club made a grand final, I'd be over the moon. So I don't know. Like uh, you can you can talk about this and and the way that they have been playing has been different, sort of a bit sort of meek, scared. The application hasn't been there. Is that a coaching thing? Is that a is that a list thing? Um, you know, we heard Josh Dunkley, friend of the pod, um, sort of speak a little bit about some of the attitudes at the Dogs and 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 how that's that was sort of part of the catalyst of him wanting to move out of there. You know, maybe there was a bit of truth that I'm sure that you know he always what he says and what the club says is sort of somewhere in the middle that kind of thing. Well, I would be surprised if they do pull the trigger early on the contract. Like the dogs have Brisbane coming up, obviously a huge clash, and they can win this week, and then Jeez. everything we say just means nothing. They got Brisbane this week, but Rich- three Richmond the week after that, Port Adelaide away, Dockers in Perth who are also struggling, and the only really winnable game from that is Hawthorne in round seven. Mm, one to watch, that's for sure. Uh, the Dockers, Christian, you're a stats guy and, and you guys look at the, the numbers closely. When the number zero hit on the uh, on the, the countdown clock over at Frio versus North Melbourne, where was the ball? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want me to make a definitive Does the ball? AFL know where the ball was? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it, really, really interesting one. I, I look at... Where the, so again, the way usually a deliberate out of bounds is called, the player kicks it, the boundary umpire has to signal that the ball has crossed the line to go out of bounds, and then the field umpire makes his decision. Mm. The boundary umpire clearly he had not signaled the ball out before the siren had finished blaring. Mm. So the ball may have crossed the line, but the umpire hadn't been able to signal. So Because the clock doesn't stop until the goal umpire has signaled a goal. So if the goal umpire is running to see... This is really not good radio. But if the goal <laughs> umpire is running towards a post to get a ball on a tight angle... The clock doesn't actually stop till he's returned to where he needs to be and has signalled the goal. I'm yes, pretty sure. Yeah, during yeah. a quarter. Yes, during a quarter. Correct. Yes. So yeah, you, you would assume it'd be the same for the boundary umpire. But if you want to get to the technicality, like the AFL has said, the siren probably went when the ball was just the right side, and the uh, the umpires were in each other's ears. They were they were talking. They were mm. saying, you know, you can pay the deliberate once it goes out of bounds, but then they said siren, siren, siren. So they obviously deliberated. Yeah. The, the the takeaway I have from this is right. Frio won the inside 50s, won the tackles inside 50, won the freeze four, won the hitouts, won the disposal efficiency, all these sort of like really nice key stats that you think. If you're not ahead when these line ball decisions come into play, it's your own fault. And against a side like North Melbourne, at home, who they should be beating, I don't have a lot of sympathy for Frio. Be in front when the siren goes. Yeah. No, this, this, the, the final siren fiasco is means absolutely nothing. I mean, they got the decision correct. The umpires adjudicated it correctly. Um, and as you as you said, they released that arc vision, which had better audio, which was more aligned with the actual vision that you're seeing when you're watching the game, because it is a little bit delayed. But again, as I said, like yeah, the the and we try to tell our our stat uh, keepers the same thing when we're talking about calling the game and towards the end of the quarter. The siren is a guide for the umpire to end the yep. quarter, so the umpire is in control. And, and what the what the 
decisions and uh, signals the umpire is making is what we go by. So again, I was more looking at the boundary umpire going, well, he didn't signal out of bounds mm-hmm. before the siren. So They're not controlling umpires as well. Exactly. And it, it's... It's yeah, not, again, it's not, it's not so much issue. where the ball is, it's when the whistle is blown for me. The issue isn't the umpires, it's it's the rule, because if that ball trickles uh, through the behinds yeah, or through the correct, goals, it, it actually counts as a score because yes. the act happened before the siren. That's, the count, that's where I'm, I'm a little bit confused. The counterpoint would be that if uh, the siren goes um, just before someone marks it in play, last year there were a couple of examples of this, the siren goes just before someone marks it in play, despite the fact the umpire hasn't raised his hands or her hands to signal the end of the quarter... They've said no, it doesn't count. So yeah. that that kind of aligns with what we saw on Saturday night. Um, look, I'm happy the umpires sort of conferred. Clearly, had a conversation. A lot of grey area though. Yeah, there is, yeah. But you know, if you if you took that up to arc, how do you know where the ball is in relation to the eye, the line? See, I don't know. Yeah, again, <laughs> just, it was just a great weekend for it to happen. I don't know if it's comparing apples and oranges, but I sat there on Friday night. Obviously, the, uh, the blackout, the blackout. We and, might not even and, get to talk about that. And and the. The waiting of time and, and sort of, you know, listening to the Fox Homicide, probably Channel 7 as well. So let's just call the game off. We don't need to. What are we going to achieve from the final 12 minutes, 12 minutes, this? And then the very next day or, you know, the next night, we're sort of talking about tenths of a second in the game of football and how valuable they are. How they were even considering not playing that final 12 minutes. I think yeah. it was just because the commentators wanted to go home. They didn't want to work the extra hour or whatever it was. But I was sitting there going, of course you have to play the final 12 yeah, minutes. The, the 60 you, you minute rule is a bit strange. That, but the rule is what it is. And I'm, I'm a big stickler. If, if the rule is written there, we know what to expect. So you can't just have the the situation pop up and then go, now let's change the rule because we actually have to apply it. So the rule was there. The game got played and you know it was a, it was a huge turnaround in those final 12 minutes for Melbourne. But... Just as I said, the sanctity of time changed. From one day, it's sort of the 12 minutes yep. didn't matter, but the yep. next day was like, we need to get these seconds and, and milliseconds correct for yep. the end of the game. Now, North North deserved that win against against the Dockers. I think no umpiring decision would have, would have changed that. Just for Clarko's antics on the boundary line for me. Oh, Fantastic. 30, 30 seconds earlier, no player has done this yet. Brendan Cox has the ball in his hands, just needs to handball it through for a behind. Yep. He tries to throw it on the boot and he yeah. scribbles it across the ground. His hands were free. That, he just you? needed to ha- He would have got an easy if, handball If that was paid a, a free kick, they're having a shot from that. 50 meter arc boundary line intersection. They're not kicking that anyway. They're going to score well, though. They just needed maybe. to score. Same spot as Hayden Ballantyne. Who, all those who would have taken ago. the kick? Who was the closest person? To uh, it? it looked like Ethan Hughes was trying to get there, um, but I reckon it was almost like Alex because Alex Pierce was talking to the umpire trying to figure out. I'm like, you don't want Alex Pierce anyway. He obviously <laughs> needed to talk to the umpire because he wanted to get the rule right. But then he needed the best to part away of this whole away. thing was all the Freo players uh, surrounding the umpires going, "What the hell? That's deliberate!" And then Luke, Luke McDonald <laughs> run from 50 meters away. Oh, did we win? Is the game over? Game, game over. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, the Saints, the Ross Lyon effect. Can we put it down to this yet? Uh, seven goals allowed. Five goals allowed against the Dogs on Saturday night. Uh, Honestly, kind of the perfect storm for a, a forward line that we knew was going to lack firepower, especially early in the season. Uh, they've been able to kick winning scores, and not low scores either against the Dogs. You know, that was a pretty comprehensive victory. Uh, how much are we putting down to Ross the Boss? A lot. Yeah. Again, you just see from the style, and then there's you know myriad of numbers that sort of say it, and everyone talks about his defensive structure, and I, I'm sort of big on... When you watch the game, it's not in-your-face pressure. They're not high for pressure. It's what's happening off-screen and behind the ball that teams just don't go forward against St Kilda. Just half of their disposals are in the back, you know, the back half of the ground, which yeah, is one of the highest so percentage. Well. So, it's it's unusual. And it, and when you see a setup like that, it's got to be the coach. The mm. coach is just drilled in. Where do you have to be standing at each situation in the game? He talked about after the game just the synergy in the coach's box as well. And you look at the coach's box there. Uh, Robert Harvey played under Ross Lyon the first time around for a, a year or two. 
Uh, Lenny Hayes, Brendan Goddard's there as well. These are all guys that he has good synergy with. So for him to kind of come in as a as a first year, you know, quote unquote, first year coach again here, to have guys that he knows pretty well, you would have thought, and then Corey Enright in there as well. Um, I, I'm really impressed with the people that are surrounding Lyon and the way that St Kilda has started the season, despite the fact that we were kind of all pretty down on the fact that they would have eight, nine, possibly more best 22 players missing at, at, at early parts of this season. Mm. Oh, they're, and they've got so many players to bring in as well. That's what's so impressive. If they, if they keep up on this winning streak, they've got Max King, Jack Billings, Hayes, Jones, Caulfield, Tim Membry, and now Jack Steele that will be in this team by the end of the year. Mm. Can they play finals? They can. Will they play finals? It's our favourite thing to ask on this podcast. <laughs> Don't worry about can. Will. Christian, you got the numbers. Seventy-four <laughs> <laughs> percent chance yeah. in history. Uh, yeah, I, again, you'd have to tip them at the moment. There's no reason why they wouldn't make the top eight the way they're playing. Well, mm. it looks like there could be two, at least two sides that were in finals last year potentially dropping out. So there's a couple of spots open. Uh, the Dons. They play the Dons this week, St Kilda. So one of these teams, as we said, will, you know, aside from the draw chance, more than likely be three and zip. St Kilda's 150th year celebration as well at the MCG. Another big crowd expected. A uh, bit of a mini blockbuster almost for this for this sort of stuff. And, and, and we like what we saw from the Dons as well. Although their scalps may not be as impressive as, as some of the others. I mean, Hawthorne, we can kind of touch on Hawthorne a little bit, but they've got some issues of their own, Jazzy, that we sort of talked about um, yesterday and, and, and this morning before we got onto the podcast. Uh, but they are still finding ways to innovate. Like, they've got personnel issues of their own. You have to only have to look at Kyle Langford on the weekend, played forward, kicked five goals, had 69% of his um, of his touches in the defensive half in round one, had 91 in the forward half in round two. So like a massive swing and, and they're able to sort of plonk him wherever they need him. There's a bit of buy-in around Brad Scott's game plan, it sort of feels, and, and it looks like it's a nice place to be, all things considered, given some of the off-field dramas that still surround the club. Mm, their numbers are actually quite similar to Frio's in terms of like they're really up there with disposals, but they're obviously scoring a lot more. Um, and more inside 50s than any other team so far. And 16 for turnovers, so they're using it really well. Yeah. So that's the difference. Um, I'm not convinced by them entirely. Like They've been somewhat impressive, and it's good to see them 2-and-zip, a team that's generally started seasons really poor in the past. Um, yeah, to see them 2-and-zip now, it, it must fill their fans with confidence, but you've, you've played Gold Coast and Hawthorne, so you really want to see them... Uh, you know, be tested against a team like St Kilda, also on the up and also on this rich vein of form. Um, this game is actually really, really important for Essendon, I think. I think it's a good game for both of them and nothing to lose for either team. I think both teams go in with a good chance to be, and as Matt said, one of them is going to be sitting pretty, hopefully, at three and zip. The team that loses, hopefully, if they still put up a good fight, you're still sort of you're going into the rest of the season with confidence. Uh, we've got to keep moving on, but a word on Gold Coast, Christian. Any thoughts? Just off the top of your head. Uh, get into some numbers, but yeah, just lack of effort. Yeah, It's it's such a weird Stay one, you know. It's hard to put quarters. that for a, for a total they number. They were wasteful in that third quarter. Yeah, yeah, but a lot of it was wasteful. And exactly, we'll sort of talk about the disposal efficiency in the forward half was one of the stats that I highlighted. But yeah, it was. There was, And again, you just look at it, it's that, it's that intangible. There's no player that says, I'll take the game by the scruff of the neck and come with me, boys. It was just, yeah, no one sort of stood up and bit lacklustre. There you go. Hey, last week we debuted that new segment, sort of the one telling stat from every team where we looked at sort of every match um, uh, and took out the sort of the key takeaway from each of those matches and each of those teams. Christian, the Blues played the Cats on Thursday night. We were very impressive. Managed to actually eke out a close win, would you believe? First time in four starts they've been able to do that. And against the reigning Premier, no less. What impressed or what really stood out about the Blues? 
Well, yeah, it was probably evident ball in hand, the change they made from round one and even from a little bit from previous years. So if you compare round one to round two, round one they kicked long 43% of the time. That dropped to 34% uh, in round two. Um, and, yeah, big bit of bigger change in the midfield. So 46% round one to 35% round two. So taking the shorter options and sh- sort of trying to sort of pick their way through the, the Geelong defence uh, was probably their main one for them across the game. And then, yeah, it was just... Work for three quarters and then just hold on for the final quarter. So 18 inside 50s to five in that final quarter. Um, you know, I think they turned it over about nine times in the back half in that in 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 that quarter and didn't. I think they conceded one score from that. So they were sort of bogged down deep, um, which is the second game in a row. We know Richmond had the most inside 50s against them round one. So Carlton's inside 50 numbers are, are bottom three at the moment. So they're you know conceding a lot of territory, but holding up well. So. Again, defence stood strong, but yeah, their actual ball movement and their kicking shorter was probably their biggest game change from round one. Do you think they've learnt from their past tight games? So that's their last four games now, including the last two from last season. That's been really, really close, single-digit margins. Do you look at that win in round two and think, okay, they've learnt from the from the close losses? Well, because so, in the last quarter, Geelong were still coming hard. Well, you saw Charlie Kerno go to the back pocket. He was sort of the last line of defence a couple of times. Harry Mackay made himself available in good spots to get kicks down the line. I know you don't want to be hitting the bailout kick every single time, hoping for the best, but um, you know there are times where he obviously proved pivotal. Blake Akers takes a contested mark. Ollie Hollands get in, gets in the way against Jeremy Cameron. I mean, there are obviously good signs of improvement there, and, and they should be improving. Uh, they're a team that we tipped to make finals last year. They're eight and two. Um, you know, we've tipped them to make finals this year. They they should be on the improve. What about the Cats? Yeah, so they're just struggling to get their hands on the ball. So fifty-seven uh, uncontested marks for the game, negative forty-one uh, against Carlton for the game. So forty-one fewer marks than Carlton for the game. Thirty-six fewer than Collingwood the week before. So just sort of struggling to sort of control the tempo of games. Um, for the first couple of weeks. And yeah, they're 17th for disposal differential across the two as well. So we talked about um, they were pressing and, you know, they had a lot of inside 50s in that final quarter, but they didn't have a lot of disposals in the forward half. Jeremy Cameron kicked a lot of, you know, kicked four of, four of his five, I think, from outside 50. Um, so they were quite clean when they went forward, but it was, it was Carlton and week one Collingwood that sort of dominated possession against Geelong and were able to sort of get those easy outlet marks and as you saw in you know the final quarter Carlton just had to hang on and Geelong just couldn't get the ball back off them yep uh, the Lions we, we looked at them last week and just how they were beaten in key stats where you would expect the Lions to be extremely strong you could pick any of about five that they improved on this week where were you heading with the Lions yeah clearances was the big one so there were plus 28 clearances um, across the game um, I think they finished that way I think they were they might have been plus uh, yeah, they were plus 26 before the break. So I think clearances were the only thing they came out and won after the break. So contested possessions, they were, you know, going to have really big numbers. That sort of got brought back after the break. They got beaten in contested possessions. Inside 50 sort of evened up. Uh, but yeah, it was a plus 28 clearances, which is Brisbane's equal best result since 2010. But even just looking at um, forward 50 stoppages. So each team had 23 stoppages in their forward 50. So they were quite even. Brisbane uh, won eight clearances from their 23 forward 50 stoppages and kicked five goals from those. Melbourne won zero clearances from their forward 50 stoppages, so obviously didn't score a point from any of those. So it was it was early on that. I think their first four forward 50 stoppages, Brisbane scored a goal from, or three of their first four at least. So that was just a bonus. The game was sort of played a little bit on their terms, but when you can... You know, you're having the same amount of stoppages in your forward 50 as your opposition, but you're getting reward on the scoreboard. Players like Charlie Cameron, Zach Bailey just came to the fore. I mean, he's so clean in traffic that if you do give him an inch of space, he'll take it and he'll kick goals. So that's what we find does happen. Uh, The Ds, disappointing? Yeah, um, so 
mouse isn't going down to the next page. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, again, 38 inside 50s before the break. That was on on par to sort of be back to 2015, 2016 numbers for Melbourne when it was really, really dark days. So they, they weren't genera- generating any inside 50s. So 38 inside 50s up until I think it was the 10-minute mark of the final quarter. Um, and then in the final 12 minutes, they had 16 inside 50s. So almost had half as many in that final. So, again... It's almost the number for me is that that break, the the final twelve minutes really, really sort of paved over some of the cracks in those numbers that were starting to appear if mm. the game had it just kept rolling the way it was before the uh, lights went out. Jazzy, your pies scoring prolifically. This is probably a side that we didn't expect to be scoring so prolifically. Almost reminds me of the glory days when the Crows had were kicking one hundred and twenty points a, a, a round up Jen- back in two thousand seventeen. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, what impressed you most about the pies? Firstly, before we go to Christian, uh, they're just lethal in attack. Yeah. I think they're the best offensive team that I've seen obviously in quite a while at least this year they are they're the most lethal team and if you're going to try and beat Collingwood you really have to outscore them you have to kick 100 plus and if you do kick 100 plus like the Collingwood mindset is just they'll kick 110 we'll kick 120 or 130 that's fine Um, yeah I I thought last year they had a lot of defensive issues but I think they're holding up quite well in defence as well and and they have improved more than I thought they would it's only early days but um they're going to be pretty hard to beat this year if they keep on attacking the way that they are. They've just got so many weapons now. And a lot of it comes down to their new recruits like Bobby Hill that Christian mentioned earlier, but also Tom Mitchell in the midfield, uh, a fit Taylor Adams, and they're getting it out to the guys like Crisp and the, the Dacos boys who are really relishing. Yeah, so we talk about sort of um, yeah the, the, the fast and furious scoring. of them. So 16.8 disposals per goal uh, on the weekend, which, again, it's, it's sort of... I looked at the last, you know, six or so years. So there's 2,844 games, uh, if you look at, you know, two teams in each of the games. So the 2,844 since 2016, only 17 times as a team had, you know, fewer disposals per goal than Collingwood. And a lot of those are earlier on in 2016, 2017, when the game was a little bit faster and higher scoring uh, than it is now. So, yeah, 16.8 disposals per goal, number one so far this year. Uh, there was three teams that had lower last year, but again, it just sort of shows you their fast, quick ball movement. And uh, yeah, just another one we spoke to. We know Collingwood probably last year, the issues were around the contest. They were probably second to the ball and more counter-attacking um, as a team. There were plus 57 contested possessions just for this week. Uh, one of the best teams this year, and it's Tom Mitchell, who's uh, 15 contested possessions per game is equal fourth Collingwood. It's very much like George Hewitt and what we're talking about, Carlton. Bring him into the team, give him one clear you are going to be our leader in this one area. Yep. And it just brings, you know, how good side bottoms form's been since then, you know, feeding it out to the two Dacos brothers, et cetera, et cetera. So the flip side, Ken Hinckley was extremely disappointed in his side for the contested ball. Uh, what did you say? Negative 50-something? Negative like. 57 from the game. So it was a 91, uh, you know, a negative 91 swing from the, the previous week. So they were plus 30-odd against Brisbane the week before, which was one of their best results. They normally negative... pride themselves on that stuff as well, yeah. that, that big brute midfielder that they've got, Wines and Willem Drew's a big body. Boke, I know he was a sub on the weekend. And it's one of those stats, again, I didn't I didn't have time to sort of get my head around how to sort of, you know, look at this in number-wise, but a lot of the times when it's plus 30 at half-time, the other team sort of comes back and it sort of just mm. evens itself out. And you'll see the team that dominates in the first half might end up at plus 35, plus 25 by the end of the game. 
This was just four quarters. It just kept going up and up and up, and Port just weren't able to arrest it at all. There you go. Uh, the Crows and the uh, Tigers was actually an interesting game because that kind of did swing back and forth a couple of times. Uh, the same issues, I think, for me, for, for Adelaide, is just they're not consistent. They're, they're pretty good when they're on, but they're just not consistent enough. Uh, the Tigers will obviously be disappointed in throwing away the lead that they had, but were able to come away with the win. Uh, any thoughts on those sides? Yeah, and again, looking at it, I think it was basically a 20-minute patch where that game was won. Um, and most of the other game, I mean, Adelaide won the key areas, so they won contested possessions, had more tackles and had more shots on goal. So they're the only team so far to win all three of those stats and lose. Um, and Steve. if you look at yeah, if you look at the last three years, 152 times teams have won those three stats um, for 136 win, 135 wins and a draw. So rare that you can sort of have yeah more of the ball, more tackles and more shots at goal and not get the result. But again, looking at sort of their accuracy, it killed them in round one, killed them in round two. Just two sort of uh, you know parts of the ground. So back half scores, they scored 12 times from the back half. Richmond scored 10, but the problem was Adelaide's was three nine. So three goals, nine behinds, and, and Richmond scored seven goals, three. So and ended up outscoring them by 18 points from the back half. And even from centre bounces, um, Adelaide scored one, three from centre bounces. Richmond scored four, one. So almost even in terms of the amount of scores, but again, just more points and, and more value from those scoring shots. Bad kicking, bad footy, good kicking, good footy, that old chestnut. Uh, Tigers, any other thoughts on them before we move on? Yeah, and it is. It was it was just a complete turnaround. So in round one, they were number one for inside fifties against Carlton at uh, sixty six entries, seventeenth for score per inside fifty, eighteenth for accuracy uh, against Adelaide. So comparing them to the rest of the round, uh, they were th- the rest of the teams for the round. They were thirteenth for inside fifties per game, um, but were the second best for goals per inside fifty and the best accuracy. So we turn around and talk about bad footing. Um, you know, bad kicking equals bad footy, but if you can arrest that after one week, have the worst accuracy one week and the best accuracy the second week. It's such a basic thing, but you kick straight, you generally win games of footy. You can have 30 scoring shots, kick two goals, 28, you're not winning. I know that's stupid and simple, well, that's the but th- it really what's the, is. What's the 30-scoring shot rule? It's like 95% of teams, if you get 30 scoring shots on the night, you're winning. Yeah, something it was, ridiculous. Yeah, it about, you get yeah, 228, you're in strife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, the Saints, we touched on them a little bit earlier, uh, and the Dogs also as well, but maybe just a brief word on them. Yeah, so St Kilda just dominated territory. So plus 20 inside 50s, that was their equal fifth best in the past five years. Um, And their ball movement, so um, being able to bring the ball from one end to the other, um, you know, they were 36% across the night, which was number one for the round and and had Bulldogs down at um, 15%, which was 16. So St Kilda able to move the ball end to end um, and do what they want with it. And then when the, as, as we sort of said earlier, when the opposition has the ball, they completely look lost and just don't take the territory. Interesting. Uh, Freo and North Melbourne, they were... Uh, oh, sorry, the just, dogs. Oh, yeah, just, yeah, just quickly on the dogs. Uh, so contested, we, we spoke about a lot of their areas are, are falling away, but um, their ground ball differential, so post-clearance, so again, we talk about winning the ground ball out in general play. So at stoppages, nearly everything is contested. Once the ball gets into general play, that's where you really got to sort of run hard and get to contest and have the, and outnumber uh, the opposition at contest. They were uh, negative 16, which was their fourth worst result in uh, the last three years and and beaten quite convincingly in round one in that stat as well. But looking at their forward half, so they're 15th for forward half marks, so they've taken the fourth fewest. They're 18th for forward half marks conceded, so their defence is conceding more marks uh, than any other side. So getting that balance right, they've sort of gone top heavy up forward. It's not not working for them, but sort of down back as well, there is still a lot of holes. Uh, there you are. Frio, like we said, won a few really key stats on the night uh, against North Melbourne, but we're just unable to kick the winning score. Yeah, and it's been that way since again. So that was the the clear um, 
uh, stat from the night was their accuracy and not taking their chances. So sort of looked at it's been an ongoing problem for them. So 17th since the start of last season for accuracy. Um, and even their accuracy, it was it was poor in round one. It improved by 11% last week, but it still only got them to 12th. Um, and yeah, the delivery inside 50 so far this year, they're last for retaining, oh sorry, second last for retaining kicks inside 50 and last for finding a mark inside 50. So struggling with accuracy, but also struggling to hit that easy target to get you an easy shot at goal to begin with. Fair enough. Uh, the North Melbourne, on the other hand, have just been really impressive through two rounds. I mean, no no one really expected a whole lot from this side. I think they expected that the Clarko build would be pretty slow, but it's off to a pretty good start so far. Yeah, and it is like there was a few numbers that sort of, you know, indicated that Frio probably were in control for most of that game, but probably with North, um, I mean, they've won the contested possession or clearances, sorry, plus 15 in both games. Um, and their, yeah, their round one game was their best contested possession differential in five or six years. So their contest work is, is uh, finally stacking up. And that's what we said was so far away from the rest of the competition last year. But I've sort of looked more individually. So at the moment, they got uh, LDU as the top ranked player in the competition using uh, champion data player rating points. They obviously got the number one goal kicker in Nick Larkey. Mm. They got the number one assist player in Cam Zerha. And they got the uh, equal fifth disposal winner in Harry Sheasel. So... Just again, the, the names that you can sort of reel off, you can see the future for North is very, very bright. He's been monstrous, LDU. For the last 10 months as well, the second half of last year, he was huge as well. But those first two two games, that, that is genuine Brownlow form. Um, perfect 20 votes in the coaches' votes as well so far, uh, as well for him. So one to keep an eye on when uh, the Brownlow night comes around. Uh, the Swans, pretty comprehensive over the Hawks. Uh, look, we can talk about the Hawks' issues uh, if we want, but... It just seems like a side that does lack mature help uh, across uh, most lines, to be honest. Uh, where do you want to go with the Swans and the Hawks? Uh, I think the Swans, uh, basically for me, they've, they've set the target for uh, everyone to aim for. They kicked 13 goals in a row uh, across the game. So that was only reached once last year. The Bulldogs did that um, in a game, I think it was against Hawthorne as well, last year. Um, but yeah, so 13 goals streak. Uh, we'll see if any team can beat that before the end of the year. But again, just their, their ability to put pressure on and then sort of release the pressure themselves that they're not under a lot of pressure when they get the ball forward just because they work it forward so quickly so just a quick comparison forward half kicking efficiency in that game 66 percent sydney 37 percent hawthorne so you get the ball forward to center and and yeah two of the two out of three kicks for sydney were still hitting the target i think that, that just goes to show a lack of experience you know a lack of composure this is what happens when you do put together a relatively young and inexperienced side against a side that came up in a grand final last year um, and, and it's just going to happen. And, and we talked about the Hawks sort of cutting too 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 much last week. Gunston out, um, Shields out. Um, who else out? Omira Mitchell. Mitchell. Uh, yeah. It just goes to show that uh, it's just a bit tough to kind of. Cut I don't all see. These I don't see him winning a game. Really? Wow, that's this a big year. call. Really? No, honestly, We've done our big calls already. Why couldn't you bring this out earlier? <laughs> no, look at their team. Seriously, is any coach, opposition coach, when they sit down during the week and? going through their opposition analysis with their with their staff. Who are you looking at at Hawthorne's team and going, oh, yeah, we've got to put some effort and work into him. We've got to try and stop him. Which player is someone trying to stop at Hawthorne? It's a good call, yeah. I don't think they have one. So, I mean... We Every have, other team so has low, at least one. The low watermark, to use an expression of yours, was two wins last year for the Wooden Spooners. Two wins, less, more. Yeah, well, I had them as my biggest oh. drop. As I said, they had eight wins last year. I couldn't... I think two wins would almost three wins would be a pass mark for them the thing is I've set myself up here because I know they're going to beat North this week 
and then you know <laughs> I'll, the quickest I'll, egg on face we've had on yeah. this podcast <laughs> nah they'll win less than two <laughs> there you go uh, Bombers and the uh, Gold Coast Suns we touched on them a little bit earlier but just a quick word before we keep moving on yeah, so we talked about Gold Coast and their ball use. So 60% disposal efficiency in the forward half was the lowest of the round. Oof. But even just looking at differential, so they were negative 18 for tackles for Essendon, so they weren't tackling better than their opposition, and they were negative 9% disposal efficiency to overall ball use. So uh, not putting the pressure on, and then when they were having it, they were just butchering the ball. So. It can't happen when you're under the roof on a perfect Sunday afternoon. I'm sorry, that's it's just not good enough. You should be like hitting up your targets inside 50 with a lot more efficiency. Uh, and, and to just be that far behind in, in those sort of markers, uh, it really disappointed me because I tipped them as well. Um, I thought, you know, last week's loss to Sydney, I thought was going to be really disappointing. Uh, and they'd come back and actually show that they're a side that can actually, you know, do some do some damage in 2023, post mm. some wins, post the 11-12 wins that they might need to potentially make finals. But they were incredibly disappointing. And the uh, ones that I spoke about earlier, they're, they're number one for mark play on percentage. So, uh, as I said, the stat that ah, stinks, that, that could be the one that lines up. Uh, uh, if you, and again, Essendon, if we want to talk about them. So, yeah, the, the Richmond blueprints are 342 metres gained by handball, which is the second most of any team for the round. Um, but then also their pressure rating. So we talked about... Um, you know, their, their first week game, Hawthorne, we spoke about they're going to be low-pressure team, Hawthorne, trying to keep the ball out in the open. So Essendon probably got drawn into that game. So they were 16th for pressure rating in round one, but stepped up to be fourth for pressure rating in round two. So showed that if they need to put the pressure on, they can. Um, a good number for them, but a watch number for me is their forward-half turnovers. So 32 forward-half intercepts for them, so winning the ball back in their forward-half, which is the third-fewest of any team. Mm. Uh, but they kick 67 points from these, which is number one. So if they're intercepting the ball in their forward half, they've scored 53% of the time. The comp average is 33%. So at the moment, if they get their hands on the ball in the forward half, they're cashing in and getting scores. But again, we sort of talk about reverting back to the mean and things like that. I don't think they're going to stay at over 50% all year. So mm. if that dries up a little bit and, and teams can start moving the ball against them, that could... Uh, could worry Essendon a little bit, but as I said, that that's one of the stats that at the moment is they're just so clearly number one in how how well they're cashing in on their forward half turnovers. There you go, uh, Eagles and Giants. Giants put in a pretty admirable performance, all things considered, given the conditions that they had to play in the week before and, and the comeback and the emotion uh, of Adam Kingsley's, Kingsley's first win. I, I feel like you know a loss to the Eagles by 19 points over there is not a terrible result for a side that we didn't expect too much of, had high hopes for, but didn't expect too much of. You know, look at the stats of this game in particular as well, and, and, and the eye test sort of showed it. It was pretty evenly matched for most of the, 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 the game, I thought. Yeah, I thought that, and again, the one number I looked at, it, it's probably a smaller number that you look at, so the overall game, there wasn't anything that was clearly in one team's favour, but just the, the ability for West Coast to win the contested ball and break out of the stoppage. So GWS had a tackle efficiency of 51%. So again, I think comp average is high, 60%. Uh, so they were last for the round. So they just weren't sticking their tackles. They were just sort of getting hands to West Coast, but allowing them to sort of break free or still get an effective disposal away. Um, so yeah, for the, for the Giants, for me, it was probably just looking at some of the defensive pressure. They moved the ball quite well again end-to-end. Um, they were pretty potent once they got it inside 50 uh, but yeah, just their ability to stop West Coast breaking out of the stoppages was the main one. And then we talk about West Coast. Have they changed? They go sort of forward with their handball. Uh, 95%, um, 95% of the time they kick the ball forward, which is their second highest percentage across the last two seasons. They kick long from a set position. Uh, their third highest in the last three seasons. Um, yeah, and sort of... They scored again. They scored from fifty-one percent of entries in the end. So again, faster ball movement. It was only the third time in three years they've been over fifty percent. 
scoring rate once inside 50. So, And you look yeah. at who cashed in, someone like Jake Waterman, probably would appreciate those quicker entries. Oh, the amount of times he got out on a lead and had 30 metres, 40 metres clear space in front of him would yep. have just, yeah, worked in, worked in perfectly for him. So, yeah, one to watch West Coast. They're actually starting to, um, yeah, move the ball a bit faster, which, yeah, could, could lead them to kicking some high scores. Big derby this week. Oh, is it ever? Derby. Don't don't get the uh, the West Coast and the Frio fans all over you on Twitter for that one. Palmy Palmer. Oh, <laughs> that's going to open a can of worms. Uh, last week, uh, we were on the pod, uh, Jared, talking about concussion and the Cozzy Pickett incident, the Shane McAdam, the Buddy. We're again talking about concussion. Again, this is, you know, 13, 14 days after lawsuits were revealed that we're going to be hitting the AFL uh, when it comes to, um, to concussion. And it's Nathan Broad who... Look, it was a pretty ugly tackle uh, on Paddy Parnell against the Crows, and, and it was just one of those incidents where you look at that, and Nathan Broad knew he did a, a terrible thing. Mm. Um, he's going to cop a lot of weeks for it. It was unnecessary because it was close to the boundary line, and it's just that, that two or three motion tackle that we want to see eliminated from the game. Yeah, this this is a horrible a horrible action, I think. And I, I said it last week again when we spoke about Cozzy Pickett, but... I like I'm someone who will always defend a football a football action. If it, if if something is a part of our game, it's a part of our game, but that tackle wasn't a part of our game. And as soon as you now pin a player's arm, which you're taught to do as a youngster, you're taught, yeah, wrap up his arm because then they can't get rid of the footy. Mm. But as soon as you do that, you also have to realise that you have a, a responsibility to so the AFL talks about the to duty show of a care. duty of care for the player that you're tackling. Um Parnell had none of that because Again, you, you you pin the arm, you wrap him up. The thing with the Nathan Broad tackle is we always speak about, oh, it's that second motion of throwing them down that the AFL is trying to eliminate. This wasn't two motions. This was like four motions. So you pin the arm, he's wrapped him up. He spins and turns, then sort of swivels and then slings him. There, there's so many motions to it, which makes it a really, really bad tackle. I was watching that. I got a headache just watching it, mm-hmm. seeing Parnell lie there on the, on the ground. I was seriously getting a headache, so I can't imagine what what he feels like and and the point of this is we don't know what effects this tackle is going to have on Parnell down in the future and that's the problem and that's what the issue is and this is why the AFL needs to make a statement and and ban Broad for at least four weeks this is worse than Cozzy Pickett and I slammed Cozzy Pickett last week I'd rather get bumped in the head than get my head thrown into the ground via a sling tackle like that yeah it's interesting and we've talked about precedent on this podcast before I think the AFL just needs to throw out precedent now that we know a bit more about concussion the effects of CTE and how it does affect players later in life in particular you can't be looking at and I'm sure that you know if, when it goes to the tribunal uh, tonight depending on when you're listening to this you know the lawyers will argue that, that Bryce Gibbs got one game or got a fine four years ago when he put um, Robbie Gray into the turf and there'll be all these kind of things I'm sorry that's now done it has we to be need to reset four. that and that way you can eliminate if you're, if you're out for a month then you get to think long and hard about doing these acts when really all that needed to happen to show a duty of care, as we talked about, was he just needed to run him over the line because it was so close to the boundary. It was just a shocking incident. No need for and it. And if we see that again this year, I'll be, I'll be shocked. Uh, and the player who does that would will probably be shocked at themselves as well. And I know Broad is quite remorseful already, but it's just one of those things you can't be doing. On oh, he didn't. Field. He obviously there's not nothing like malicious ab- about the tackle, but it is the it is the wrong thing. It's a horrible act, and, yeah. and he's got to go. But you, you see, you know, you just said we're not going to see another one this year, but we saw another one on the weekend with Ryan Burton. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, well, well, again, look. Hopefully, these are the first two rounds of footy. I just think the AFL needs to send a message, and once the message is sent, um, the players will start to get it a little bit more. Uh, we're getting into a red time of this podcast. That is sponsored by Subway. 
Jazzy, it's time for is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? The segment where I'll say a statement. You tell me whether the hype is justified or it's hyperbole. My favourite segment. It's great, isn't it? Uh, we should be concerned about the Cats at 0-2. Uh, hyperbole. Um, I know Christian's got the the damning stats of 0-2 and <laughs> teams, but I don't think it's going to concern Geelong. Like, you know, I, Christian mentioned it before, they're not controlling the footy. Um, they are winning a lot of uh, clearances. They're second for clearances overall, but after they win the clearance, they're just not maintaining the footy and they're not con- not controlling the game overall. Mm. That's their issue. I think a lot of that actually stems from their back line as well. You, you've normally got Tom Stewart's the general down there who sets them up, Jack Henry. Collegeasney. Collegeasney as well. De Koning's on one leg at the moment. Hawkins is underdone. Um, yeah, look, it's not great being 0-2, and two, but they've played two pretty good teams, two teams that I think will push for the top four, if not make it. Um, and they've got the best home ground advantage in the competition, in my opinion. So they'll come good. Uh, yeah, no no concerns for the Cats. Fair enough. Uh, Christian, as a rusted on Carlton supporter, I'll throw this one at you. Collingwood will be everyone's second team by the end of the year. Uh, they're not going to be my second team, <laughs> but I'm not going to enjoy it, but I'm on board. They're, they are, Them and Sydney, I think, are clearly at the moment looking like the two best teams in it. Again, early days, round two. Um yeah, funny one. I think you got to you got to love the way they play and you got to appreciate it. But there's still a bit of me that just remembers they are Collingwood, <laughs> and I'm not going to jump too much on board. But uh, yeah, going to be the team, going to be the best team to watch for for a number of seasons. I think. Yeah, Matty, I got one for you. 85k at the G. That's what we're going to see between Collingwood and Richmond. Oh, the hype's justified. They'll get 85 to this massive Friday night. Um, you know, Richmond undefeated. Collingwood undefeated. I mean, you know, the draws in there. I know, a bit of a technicality. What's Mother Nature got in store? Well, that's a good point. So we do this live on the pod. Let's have a look at what the weather looks like on Friday. It will be oh, cloudy in a top of twenty. Perfect Melbourne autumn. Too cold weather. for Jared. <laughs> <laughs> I won't uh, be there. No, they will. That's that's a massive game uh, with a massive crowd. Two big clubs in Melbourne. Um, Christian, you were talking off air about the fixture and how everything's just sort of really fallen into place this year with the fixturing. Yeah, it starts from Thursday night. As I said, it's almost and again, you know. Talk about hyperbole and making big calls, but it's almost a season-defining game Thursday night for yep. the Bulldogs. Um, pretty big one for Brisbane just to see, okay, you know, smash round one. You went well against Melbourne. How true is it? Mm. Uh, leads into the big um, Saturday night game, the two, the showdown and the the, the derby. The derby. Couldn't have come at couldn't come at better times, I think, for Adelaide and Port. Again, later in the year, we expect Port probably to be you know higher on the ladder than Adelaide. But at the moment, the way Port's come off their sort of disastrous game against Collingwood and what Adelaide have done the first two weeks, that could be a very even game. Um, Carlton travelling up to GWS, sort of, mm. you know, I don't know where GWS is sitting, but for Carlton, they sort of had two games where they sort of had to hold on and played very good teams. If they are one of the better teams in the week uh, in the competition, you expect them to beat GWS quite convincingly this week. Hawthorne North, one of them's going to be three and zip. I mean, it's the it's the Alistair Clarkson return game down in Tassie, but even just where the where the teams are sitting at the moment, they're both sitting pretty. Um, so yeah, it's just it's fallen into place, and I think by the end of this round we'll have twenty seven games played. Yeah, I would say one game to me so far has been a relic. Sydney Hawthorne sort of don't get much out of that game, but mm. all the other twenty six games I think have been pretty good. Um, um, the Hawks fans are like you saying that they've been sitting pretty all year. They uh, have been pretty disappointed. Yeah, well, not, sorry. <laughs> I know you're sitting mean. pretty. But, yeah. All good. Um, what was I going to say? Grundy. Brady Grundy will step up and be the number one ruck uh, for the Ds and be one of the better rucks in the competition well, by the time Max Gorn gets back. He'll be the number one ruck for Melbourne. Well, he has to be, yes. But he will step up into that role. Yeah, no, he will. I think you he'll, will he'll see him uh, not get back to the heights of 2019. I think that was his All-Australian year at Collingwood. Uh, but he will be a very, very solid 
Ruckman again without Gorn. The, the only concern is is if Grundy goes down, there's no really other Ruckman on the Melbourne list. They've got Jacob Van Ruin playing in the VFL, but he's more of a forward and a pinch-hitting Ruck. Mm. Uh, but he's probably one that would be next in line if, if Grundy did go down. They, you know, they wouldn't expect Gorn to get injured when they pick up Gorn and Grundy. They're planning to play both of, both of them in the first team, and now they're only stuck with one. So um, they don't have a lot of Ruck depth outside of those two, which is potentially mm. the number one and two Rucks you saw in the that competition. When when Brisbane named their side, they felt almost compelled to pick the second Ruck, yeah. which probably might not be in a lot of teams' plans. But when you come up against Melbourne, you almost were forced to think about that. Whereas now, I think teams can almost sort of breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief that they don't have to think about that extra um, added dynamic. So, look, Grundy, one to watch absolutely in the next few weeks. Uh, don't forget, guys, Ron Connolly is on the Footyology podcast every Wednesday. He's with Rodney Ede previewing every game. Uh, that's on the ESPN network. So make sure you do check out Roco uh, every week. Footy tips. How are your tips going, Jared? Just off the top of your head. Got five this week. Five? Yeah. Christian, you going all right? Oh, you can't tip, can you? Technically. No, we're, I'm, no, we're still in it, so um, no direction yet. But uh, <laughs> I've entered my two kids into the competition this yep. year, so they're on the ESPN they're footy tips. You? and No, I'm beating them, so oh, I'm going quite That's well. Sure. I, think I, I think I only got three in, in round one, so um, yeah, what's that? Eight? Eight yeah. overall, but it's probably better than it's not been a good start for a lot. Better of people. than some other p- people. Oh, are doing, we got I think. we got a we got a message on Twitter uh, from Lee Minopoulos who hit us up and he said, "Can we get a fact check on what the lowest ever score in the history of ESPN Footy Tips is?" I'm currently zero from eleven games, so this must have been after Friday night. That's impressive. Uh, well, yeah, impressive is one word to I guess describe it. Uh, at that point, he was here's this seven hundred seventy four thousand four hundred fortieth. Out of seven hundred and seventy-four thousand four hundred and forty-five, that's actually, like I want to applaud that. <laughs> you know, I couldn't be that bad if I tried at tipping. So he was really bad. But um, don't fear, Lee. You're actually not the worst we've ever seen. In 2012, there was a tipper who tipped every round, mind you, with a final score of 43, <laughs> which was an average of 1.8 per round. And put it this way: this was GWS's first year. So there should have been a guaranteed slam dunk basically every single week. Mm. So my thinking is that person was trying to go for the lowest score. But if I'd been trying to go for the lowest score the first two weeks, I'd be better on the score than I've got now. Either that yeah. or that person had the most exciting footy season ever because every game he sat down and watched, <laughs> like, I did not expect this to happen. <laughs> uh, in 2008, the lowest cumulative score we've ever seen after three rounds was one. Uh, so I don't think anyone's that bad. Uh, and then looking at a score of zero after two rounds, which has happened a few times, the lowest score we found after a full season when the tipper tipped every round, so they didn't give up, was 74. So you can still salvage a little bit of uh, mm. a little bit of respect there. What was his name? Lee. Lee. Lee uh, Monopolis. You're bad, uh, Lee, but you're not terrible, mate. Yeah, oh, he's Long season. <laughs> long season. <laughs> it's a long season. Uh, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, if you do want to get in touch with us like Lee, at Footy Tips on Twitter, make sure you get your tips in. Any questions, comments, feedback, all appreciated. Jared, good to speak with you. I think Jake's back next week, so you might be back on the pine, unfortunately. Yeah, get the sub vest back on. Sub vest. Just don't look too I, surprised. I won't complain like Dyson. No. <laughs> uh, Christian, good to speak with you. As always, to everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.